Welcome to the Catholic Sportsman Show. And before we uh, introduce our guest, Evan Schott, we're going to uh, start off with a prayer to St. Joseph. So in the name of the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, amen. 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 O St. Joseph, whose protection is so great, so strong, so prompt before the throne of God, I place in you all my interests and desires. O St. Joseph, do assist me by your powerful intercession and obtain for me from your divine Son all spiritual blessings through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that having engaged here below your heavenly power, I may offer my thanksgiving and homage to the most loving of fathers. Hmm. And we also ask uh, for uh, St. Sebastian, the patron saint of Christian athletes, to pray and guide us in our discussion and blessed Carlo Cutis, who is a technical technical patron, uh, blessed of the Catholic <laughs> sportsman show. Amen. In the name of the amen. father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So Devin shot is, um, he is our guest today. We're very excited to have him. He is a, a husband and a father of five children. And uh, he is the co-founder of the Fathers of St. Joseph. So we're really excited to uh, learn more and hear about um, this Fathers of St. Joseph today in our call. And, uh, and Devin, we just, um, we'd like to start off the show and just uh, let you uh, talk about yourself, uh, your family, and, um, and how were sports involved in your faith and faith journey in your whole life at the, up to this point? Yeah. Well, um, as you said, I've been, well, I've been married for, uh, 27, wait, yeah, 27 years. Um, same woman, beautiful woman. I'm very thankful. She's born five of our daughters. So I'm surrounded by women. Our, our oldest mm -hmm. daughter now is married and to a great guy. And I've now got three grandchildren. So, um, two, two of which are boys. So I finally got boys in my bloodline, you know, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's just, and we live in the Midwest, you know, so we're just kind of real people here, and we we love it that way. Um, sports, though, were sports a part of my life? Absolutely. So I remember one of my earliest memories as a child, I think I was three or four, it, it was like probably 1973, we had a very small house, and my dad had a black and white TV up on the, kind of up in the shelving area, on top of the cabinets or something, and there was a Cubs game on and it was black and white TV, but I saw these guys running around these bases, you know? And I, I asked my dad, I'm like, what's that? And he said, Oh, it's baseball. And I said, well, what's baseball? And he says, all these guys, these guys, they run around the bases. And if they can get to that home plate, they get a point. And I'm like, that sounds pretty easy. I like that. And so I was hooked. And, and so from that point on, baseball was life. And then football was like a, a, a semi-close second. And I'm just full disclosure, I'm a very short guy. Um, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was five foot one and a half. And that half inch meant a lot mm -hmm. to me. So, but I did play, I played high school baseball, high school football. They always wanted me on the wrestling team. And in fact, I would get in little bouts as I was going off to the batting cage the uh, team captain for the wrestling team would taunt me and make fun of me. And I'd end up pinning him in 30 seconds. And then we got that over with, you know, but 
But uh, but yeah, so baseball was a huge part of my life. Um, and it was a way for me to really bond with my dad. Um, and that that was kind of a big deal because my dad was on the road a lot with his with his work. Um, and I found that that was a way to connect with him. It, he coached our teams. He taught me how to hit. He taught me how to throw. And I learned how to hit to the opposite field. I learned how to steal second base. I learned how to round second base and go for a triple, you know, and I had some wheels. So, you know, he taught me a lot. He taught me how to be scrappy. Um, so, yeah. And then football, I was a defensive secondary and I was just short enough that the quarterback couldn't see me so I could make a lot of interceptions, you know. And <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of my strategy was just to be small and unseen and and but yet make those big plays. So, but two things happened, um, that kind of, I thought I was going to play college ball, baseball. Um, but I broke my ankle playing football during a football game where I tackled a guy at the end zone and my own teammate, just his whole body landed on my whole, my lower half of my leg and just shattered my ankle. So I had to have two reconstructive surgeries. That was my junior year. And so, uh, that's my speed was compromised a little bit after that. So I definitely was not as fast. And then my senior year in baseball, we were taking infield for a night game and, uh, we had an infield that had a lot of ruts on it. And the, the ball, uh, caromed off of one of those ruts and hit me square in between the, the legs right in the nut cup. And I went okay. down right in front of the crowd and my coach told me to rub it off. And so I lost my confidence and <laughs> I ended up in center field that game and every game after for the rest of the season. So my confidence and my speed were both compromised. So I never got back that confidence to play shortstop, although I played shortstop and second base um, my entire life. So it was funny. I ended up in the outfield, but yeah, so that's my kind of the short of my sports career. As I was reading about you on the internet, I noticed that you talk a lot about the crisis of fatherhood. Yes. What, what would you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a good way to start with a crisis of fatherhood would maybe be to give just like a picture, paint a picture with some statistical data, um, which you know, as guys, we tend to love that, especially the back of the baseball cards, you know, get the stats. But you look at there's about 334 million Americans and 19% of those Americans are fathers. So some 64 million men are fathers in America. Of those fathers, 18.4 million children, that's one in four, live without any kind of father, stepfather, foster father, biological father. And 43% of kids live without their biological father. And if you can believe it, 50%, yeah, so 50% of kids experience divorce you know, among their parents. So what we really have right there, just right there, just those four stats, we've got the famine of fatherhood, right? And you carry that down a couple of generations as if we keep going at that trajectory and those stats are only going to get worse. And then you look at among those 334 million Americans, some 21% of Americans, 70 million, 71 million are Catholic. And they say among Catholics, roughly 39%. I don't believe that stat, but they say 27 million Catholics go to Mass every Sunday. I think it's a lot lower than that, actually. But let's just say it is. And by the way, in 1955, it was 75% to put that in perspective. So we're roughly, I think we're more like 25%, but in 1955, it was 75% of Catholics attended Mass weekly. But then if you take that, if you take that 27 million Catholics who are, you know, attending Mass every Sunday, let's say 39% are men. 
60, you know, uh, yeah, 61% are female, roughly in there. So you've got 10 million men, 10 million Catholic men who go to Mass every Sunday. And as Matthew Kristoff from the New Evangelization, he did some statistical research and found that one-third of devoted Catholic men pray daily. So you take that 10 million down to a third, you've got 3 million. And I would say maybe one-fourth of that 3 million are fathers. And so you're looking at maybe 2 million guys who are Catholic in America, go to Mass every weekend, and pray daily. These are the Navy SEALs of the Catholic Church, right? And so if you look at that compared to 334 million Americans, it almost seems insignificant. And then if you take in the stats, and, and this, this can be pretty bleak, but if you look at the stats on pornography, you know, men from the ages of 18 to 30, 79% of men in that age bracket use pornography monthly. And then, and then men from the ages of 31 to 49, 67% use pornography monthly. And ages 50 and up, 50% of those men use pornography monthly. Now, why is this important? You couple that with the statistics I just, I just gave you. God has called men to be the spiritual leaders of their family. Being a spiritual leader, being the pater familias, the father of the family, you have, in a sense, you have headship. You have the ability, as St. Peter says, to become a distributor of God's manifold grace. But to be distributor of God's manifold grace, you've got to be in the state of grace. And state of grace means that you're without mortal sin. Otherwise, you're not transmitting grace, but you're transmitting something else to your family, oftentimes evil. And so when you've got two-thirds of men who in America— who are men trapped in boys' bodies because of the scourge of pornography. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying these are the stats. You've got two-thirds of Catholic men that on a monthly basis are suffering and being distributors of God's manifold grace. And then if you couple that with the statistics that if you, if you I think it's like 90%, 88% of youths in prisons come from fatherless homes. Children from fatherless homes are 32 times more likely to run away from home and six times more likely to commit suicide. Um, dads have twice as much influence as mom in helping their teens stave off premarital sex. And I think Columbia researchers said that children from two-parent households, uh, who, children who have a strained relationship with their father, are 68% more likely to use drugs and alcohol. And then uh, I think that if, if father is absent, there's almost a 50% uh, likelihood that that family, that mother and those children will live in poverty. It's like 47 48%. And then if you look at, if the mother's the first to convert to Christianity, there's a 17, that's one 7% probability that the family will follow. But if the father's the first to convert to Christianity, there's a 93% probability that the family will follow. So what I'm demonstrating here is that the father of the family, he is called to be a spiritual father, and he is essential He's necessary, and he's vital not only for the redemption and salvation of his own family, but for the church and for the world. Because I believe that society goes by with the family, and the family goes by with the father. If you want to change the world, we fathers, we've got to change. And why is this important to us? Because we're going to be judged on love, you know, in the end. We're going to be judged on charity. And charity is in relationship. And the primary uh, relationships that we have as men are with our wives our children, you know, and then the, our co-workers, but primarily our wives and our children. So we're held responsible at some level for this. So this is very, very important. I believe that as the family goes, so goes the church. And the family goes by means of the father. Right. So important. And I think it's really interesting, too, that you mentioned that that was one of the ways you connected with your father was 
through sports. Yeah. Because as, as kids, we need a way to connect with our parents. And that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was very interesting. I was in, it was, uh, I was playing a doubleheader in high school and the second game we were getting rocked by this team. This pitcher had a, a rocket for an arm and I was, it was ninth inning. It was late in the game. Um, and I, there was two men on, we were literally down by two runs. It was like the moment you, you wish for as a kid, you know, when you're in the backyard by yourself, pretending you got the bases loaded mm-hmm. in the grand slam at the last minute, this was one of those do or die situations, but I was literally dying because my first two at bats, I struck out, I was humiliated. I get in the box and I, this guy, I could not get my bat around on him. And so I backed up as far as I possibly could in the box. And the ball came in high and outside. I was already down in the count. Oh, and two. And the ball came in high and outside. And my dad had taught me how to go to the opposite field, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just knew instinctively to go with it rather than try to, you know, wrangle it into left field. And I crushed it. It was like, and I wasn't a home run hitter at all. I was like a scrappy guy, Mm -hmm. like, you know, singles, doubles. I was an average hitter. And I crushed it. And I was like so blown away that I almost tripped over the first base bag, you know. But I got around those bases. It was a home run. And I got there and my team is tossing me up, you know, because we won the game and they're howling you know, like wolves. And, and, you know, as glorious as that moment was, I was, I was scanning the stands. I was looking for something. I was looking for someone. I was looking for my dad. I was looking for the fist bump, the attaboy. But you know what? He wasn't there that day. He was at work and I knew he wasn't there. And yet in vain, I scanned those stands. And, and looking back at that memory, what that tells me is innately, I have a desire, yes, for the gaze of my human father, for his approval, his validation, but he's an icon, a symbol, an efficacious symbol of the heavenly father whose gaze I, I tremendously desire. I want his approval, his validation. I want him to take delight in me as he did with Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And so fatherhood for me, in good and bad, has allowed me to see that we are called to be icons of God the Father. I'm called, like, as Malachi chapter 4, verse 6 says in the Old Testament, God says, he he reveals his game plan through the prophet Malachi. He says, in the end, before that great and terrible day, I will send my prophet, Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and the hearts of children toward their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. And so what's going on there? God wants us fathers to turn our gaze of love and approval and in all of that, that validation and yes, discipline, properly speaking, and all that, that attention that rightly our children deserve toward our children so that they not only trust us and know that they have our love, but they trust Father. They believe and know that they have his love. And that's what we as fathers are called to be. We're called to be these icons, these living symbols these grace transmitting symbols of God, the father to our children. I'm called to be the face of the father that my children cannot see. I'm called to be the voice of the father that my children cannot hear the touch of the father that my children cannot feel. And by means of those three things and me choosing them and just not accepting them, we can get into that too, if you want, but by me intentionally choosing them and desiring them in the proper way, they believe in their heart of hearts that God loves them. He desires them and they can trust him. And I believe that that's why atheism is going crazy. I believe that's why the transgender movement is going crazy because these people are angry. And I feel sorry for them to, to some level because they're wounded because 
frankly, they didn't get what so many of us have gotten in the past, which is love. And they're longing for love, but now they're rebelling and resisting and hating family and hating fatherhood and hating motherhood because they didn't get that. They didn't get that love through those channels. And yes, I, I think that there's, on one hand, I have great compassion for them. On the other hand, I do not think that what they're doing with their ideology to shut down Christians and families is, it's apprehensible, right? So we need to compassionately love these people and show them the love they never got. And hopefully it will bring them into the church and bring them back to the Lord. Right. And, and I mean, that's such a great story about <laughs> looking in the stands, right. For the, your father, right. For the yeah. icon and that, and then that this, like this passion that you have, right. Probably directed you to start the the fathers of St. Joseph. Can you kind of give us a little more background on how all that came about? And Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it was my wife and I, we, we were married a couple of years, I think three years. She miscarried with a first child. And then we had shortly after that, we were able to, she was able to get pregnant. We had two children. And then the third one, um, Anna Marie, she was born at 28 weeks premature. And if you understand what that is, I mean, that's very, very early on. And so when she was, when she was born, she was very small, like the size of her leg was the size of my index finger. So she was just tiny. And so she spent a month in the neonatal intensive care unit. They were able to get her lungs and her digestive system functioning properly. And then we took Anna Marie home, you know, a month later. And she was our perfect little girl, our third daughter. But within five days, she was having trouble breathing. Um, she spiked a fever. So we took her back to the hospital, but we couldn't readmit her to the neonatal intensive care unit for fear of infecting the other babies. And the nurses there were excellent. So we had to um, admit her to the pediatric unit, which the nurses had no experience with a baby that small. And they said that, and it should have been a red flag for me, but I was a young father and I didn't, I, I didn't know. And um, long story short, there was some nurse neglect, um, my, which they admitted. Um, my wife, uh, or my daughter um, suffered 10 hours of apnea where not enough, she wasn't breathing properly, uh, a hypoxic event, not enough oxygen was transmitted to her brain. And then the life support team got in there, got our manual life support, rolled her across the tarmac. The head nurse said, this is, we, that we take full responsibility for this. This is our problem, which they never do. And rolled her across that tarmac, got on the medevac helicopter and shipped her off to a hospital two hours away. And on her way there, she had three clinical death experiences and permanent brain injury. And so I drove to the hospital that night and a lot happened, but my wife drove the next day. And by the time she got there, Anna Marie was inflated on the Lasix. The, the ventilator was breathing for her. They, she was coding out and they had to come in and defib her. And literally she was just not good. It, it was like she was very close that she was not going to make it. And when my wife saw her, she, she broke down. And, and at that time I was working around the clock doing sets for Fox news and PBS, like designing sets and working, overseeing the construction of them. I was trying to start my own business. I was a youth minister. I mean, I was like doing all this stuff. And my wife just said, I basically, I need you to come home and be a husband and father. And I thought I am, I mean, <laughs> you know, I am a husband and father. And I think what she was really saying is, I need you to be intentional about this because I need you. And, and so I tried it. I mean, I really tried to be a good father, a good husband, but I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, and I began to languish because I think what was happening was I backed off on work. 
I backed off on my dream to start my own business. I quit youth ministry and all ministry together. And I just was kind of dying. But really what I was going through was a pride detox because I wanted to hit it big in the world. You know, I wanted to have a great job and make more money. And I wanted to be self-important and all that stuff. And I was kind of going through this pride detox. And a friend of mine recognized that I was struggling. And so he took me on a pilgrimage halfway around the world. And it's Medjugorje. Medjugorje is you know, mm-hmm. kind of controversial. But while I was there, a couple things happened. I was explaining to this woman who was our guide, who's kind of like our spiritual director for the retreat. She, we were talking and I'm just like, I just feel like I want to serve God. I want to do more for God, but I just don't know how to make that happen, how to actuate it. And she said, are you a husband? And I said, yes, I'm a husband. And she said, do you have children? Yes, I have three children. She said, go home and be St. Joseph. And I was like, let me think. You mean that guy who's bald? You know, this is the stained glass windows. He's bald. He's really, really old. He loves lilies, loves lilies. I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. And so then um, later I went to confession while I was over there. I was talking to a Dominican uh, priest. He's a friar. And I was confessing my sins. And he said, just like, he just came out and he said, you will become a saint by means of your vocation, not outside of it. And I was just like, whoa, that, first of all, the Holy Spirit allowed me to understand that made a lot of sense. Second thing was I wasn't doing that. And I always thought that the path to glory was somewhere else, you know, outside the family. The family's going to take care of itself. You know, fatherhood takes care of itself. My kids are going to, it's like planting an oak tree in the backyard, you know, the rain and the sun will take care of it, you know? And no, that is not right. And so it really woke me up. And so I went home. I really dedicated my life more to the Blessed Mother. And I asked her to reveal to me St. Joseph. And then what happened next was crazy. Um, I was like on download. I would, I would, I made my up, upstairs attic, which was very old and rustic. I, I turned it into a chapel, and I would just spend a lot of time there. And then these thoughts about Saint Joseph comparing the patriarchs of the Old Testament started coming into my brain while I was praying. And I'm not a scripture scholar. I'm not an academic. I'm not a theologian. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm literally nothing. I wasn't even a writer at that time or anything like that. And so I started taking these reflections or these inspirations, and I started writing a letter to myself about fatherhood, comparing St. Joseph to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and David. And so what transpired was I started sharing this with a buddy of mine in a writer's group that I founded, and uh, I wrote this volume, Joseph's Way, the Call of Fatherly Greatness, and it wasn't like a book form. And and so it was a rough draft, and I shared it with a friend of mine who shared it with a publicist without me knowing, who shared it with a publisher without me knowing. And the publisher was Ignatius Press. And they called me and said, hey, we want to publish your book. (laughs) And and we had started a a small group around this book. And that group started growing. It went, I mean, immediately we had 30 guys. And then pretty soon we had 40 guys. And then over a couple of years, we had 60 guys and 70 guys who wanted more of this content. And so that's how it just kind of, it exploded. And then, you know, today we, there's FOSJ, Father St. Joseph groups lead is another devotional. We have lead groups around the world, Austria, Australia, Italy, uh, you know, you name it. I mean, but it's not like there's many, but they're, they're all over the place, Ireland, Scotland. And it's just really beautiful um, to think that my struggle is a similar struggle for so many men. And, and so we, the, the message I think resonates, you know? Absolutely. And it's just, we need 
we need your group at this time, right, in our society, right, for the to help fill the void for like men looking for something to grab onto. Yeah. Um, well, and since Devin, since this is the Catholic Sportsman Show, uh, for <laughs> for those people listening out there, right? Um, yeah. How can participation in sports help or hurt the most important relationships in someone's life? Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you guys have asked this question before. So if I'm repeating answers that have been said before, just stop me. But um, in my opinion, I think that what sports, at least what sports did for me was, and this was difficult for me because I was very insecure, you know, my size, I was, you know, but I think it, it taught me to learn to lose with dignity. You know, you, you look the guy who beats you or the team that beats you in the eyes, you shake their hands and you give them credit, you know, you give them credit where credit is due, you know, so you learn to lose with dignity. But also in that is that you learn from your failures, you know, you learn, hey, why, why wasn't I hitting that guy? Was I dropping my shoulder? You know, was I swinging down on the ball or was I swinging up on the ball? You know, um, you know, so I think that the sports is like a microcosm for life to where you can you can learn how to fail and learn how to succeed from your failures. And I think that that's a must in life. I think a lot of people, when they fail, they feel defeated and they give up. Oh, I always wanted to be a writer. And then they try writing something and it doesn't get published. And then they feel like a failure, right? And they give up. They give up their dreams. Well, I, I saw that in sports all the time. You get these kids out there and they, they, you know, they, they wouldn't play well their first year and they give up, you know, but Give it a little more time. Give it a little more effort. Learn from your failures, you know, and lose with dignity. Um, and also, too, I think a big thing was that I had to learn to be a team player, which can be difficult sometimes. So, you know, sometimes I'm dragging down the team. Sometimes someone else is dragging down the team. But it's just like war, you know. You literally got to drag each other with you, you know, and and enter battle. And so I think that camaraderie, respect for one another, trying to build on other people's talents, and then actually try to help other people in their inadequacies or where they're struggling um, is a big deal. So I think that those are the those are some really, really good things that I, I took from sports. I think that some of the things that lessons that I maybe learned now that weren't so healthy were, I, I think I did sports a lot of times, and I think you can see this sometimes to earn favor, affirmation, validation. Um, I was listening to a podcast where Pat Leoncioni, who's very famous, he um, he said that some of the most wounded uh, elite, some of the most elite athletes are some of the most wounded people in this world. And it's because, you know, they come out of this rough childhood or a difficult life and they're pushing themselves and pushing themselves, which is good, but it's in that hunger for validation. It's never going to be good enough. It's never going to be good enough because really at the bottom of that is a lack of trust that God the Father is all sufficient, that God the Father's love is all sufficient. And so we just push ourselves to prove ourselves. And that's Satan in the desert. He's like, if you are the son of God, turn that stone into bread. If you are the son of God, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself. That's the devil, you know? And I think that Another big unhealthy thing now, which is becoming a huge trend, is that parents are living vicariously through their children in sports. So maybe their achievements or their lack of achievements, they're trying to live out another life through their kids and just pushing their kids and pushing their kids. And a friend of mine told me about a friend of his who was an all-state wrestler. 
junior high, high school, and he was set to go to the Olympics and everything. But it was because his dad just constantly pushed him, pushed him, pushed him because his dad was trying to live through him. And finally, the son just got so sick of it that he gave up the career, right? He threw the baby out with the bathwater. And so, and that puts so much pressure on the kids because they feel like the only way that they can get love is if they perform well, you know? And, and, and that's really a lie because it is a lie. And, but then when we transfix or transpose that or place that on God, what happens is, is that we think that God only loves us when we do something good. You know, or God is dis- God doesn't love us when we do something bad. That's a lie. God loves us because we're his. Bottom line, that he loves us because we're his. Yes, he can be displeased with us when we sin. Yes, he can be pleased with us when we do good. But that does not change his love for us because his love is perfect. And every good father knows this. I love my children not because of the good they do. And I don't not love them because of the bad they do but I love them because they're mine, you know? And I love my children a lot more than your children because I love, because they're mine, you know? And, and, but God loves all of his children because they're his. And I think that it's super, super dangerous. The other thing I would say about sports today is that it really, really is usurping the primary focus, which is the domestic church. So instead of family dinner, you know, we're out at sport events, you know, eating hot dogs or whatever we can, you know, to survive, you know, instead of family Sunday mass, we're at sporting events. And it just, it just shows that this is where sports become dangerous is because just like anything, you see the best of the best who are getting all the accolades and the honors. And then we think our kids can achieve that. And so then that becomes the idol. That becomes the goal. That becomes what we worship. And you can tell what you worship because what you worship is what what you love is what you sacrifice for. Right? So if we're not sacrificing for God, but we're sacrificing for sports, that shows you who your God is. Right? So I think that these are some of the pitfalls. It doesn't mean that sports are bad. Sports are great. I love sports. I, I was a sports guy my entire life. You know, sports are excellent. It's just like this. This is the devil. The devil's strategy is the devil can create nothing of his own. But what the devil does is he like rides on the coattails of something good and he maligns it and redefines it. He twists it up. He distorts it. So like you've got sexuality, intercourse, beautiful. God created to be pleasurable. God created to be a bonding between a man and woman. Beautiful. Satan takes that something good, he twists it, distorts it, perverts it. So you got adultery and pornography and contraception and all that stuff. That's what he does. And he does the same thing with sports. Sports are great. Sports are so fun. I learned so much from sports. But then he twists it all up and makes it a God. In order to get us to be distracted from the God who really gave us competition and self-mastery and teamwork and all of that. So that's just kind of... Those are just kind of some of my thoughts. <laughs> and, and this question came out of, because I listened to one of your interviews and you said that kind of a litmus test or a decision for men is we decide if we're going to do something based upon our relations. Mm-hmm. So like if I went and fasted for 20 days and I was a grumpy husband, well, that's not very yeah. good because I'm impacting my wife. Yes. But if I decide, hey, I can take my wife to the game or or whatever, we do some sort of activity um, it's, it's in this, in relation to my important relationships in my life, my wife or family or friends. So 
Yeah, um, exactly. I think it just helps us discern all those decisions. Yeah. So your personal, so we, we as men, we're big on self-help and making ourselves better a lot of times. So that personal transformation, to know that it's real, it must lead to relational transformation. Like that, that's what you're saying. So yeah. if, if that personal transformation, whatever we do does not lead to that relational transformation, then it's, then it's not good for us, you know? Right. I was going to ask, so what are the four pillars of St. Joseph's spirituality? Yeah, so the four pillars of St. Joseph's spirituality are basic. The first one is embracing silence. So when you, we learn right away, we see Joseph in a dilemma in the scriptures. His wife is pregnant without his cooperation. I mean, we cannot imagine. I mean, I cannot imagine. You know, I mean, my wife showing up pregnant without my help. I don't know what I would do. But so what does Joseph do? Does he post it on Twitter or Facebook? You know, my wife's pregnant without my cooperation. He tweets, mm -hmm. you know, he, no, he enters the silence. He, he goes before God in prayer and it is there that he receives the counsel and the directives that he needs. And that's the same for us. So we've got silence. Uh, we embrace silence. That's the first pillar. Then from that silence, we embrace woman. So that means we embrace all women by defeating lust in the heart and striving to do that. We uh, embrace women by bearing our wife's burdens as our own. And then also uh, by consecrating and entrusting ourselves to the Blessed Mother. So we embrace women. That was the outgrowth of Joseph's silence. He took Mary into his home. This inaugurated his call to greatness, his call to fatherly greatness, because after that, embracing woman, Joseph embraced the child, Jesus, as his own. He in in uh, well he just he claimed Jesus as his own and I could get into that so Joseph embraces the child he embraces his fatherhood so like I said he becomes the face and the voice and the touch of God the Father to Jesus and then he embraces his charitable authority to lead by loving and love by leading because if you notice in the scriptures after the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel uh, spoke to Mary about the fact that she would conceive and bear a child. All the divine directives after that were given to St. Joseph. Go to Egypt. Come back from Egypt. All of that. All these directives were given to Joseph. And why is that? Because God is establishing a paradigm. God is saying the father is the spiritual leader of the family. And this is perfect because you've got Mary, who is full of grace. She's perfect. Jesus, who's full of grace and truth. He's perfect man, perfect God. And then you got Joseph, <laughs> you know, if anything, he's the least perfect member of the Holy Family, yet God calls him to lead. So as men, it's no excuse if we don't think we're perfect. It's no excuse if we don't think we're holy. It's no excuse if we don't think that we're Bible scholars. Who cares? God still calls us to lead. Why? Because God has given us a natural instinctive authority that people respect. You know, your kids naturally respect your fatherly authority if you live it. You know, it doesn't mean you have to be Jeff Cavins, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be Scott Hahn or whoever, you know, it just, it means you just have to love the Lord with all your heart. Just give it your best and let that come out to the rest of your family. So those are the four pillars, embrace silence, embrace woman, embrace child and embrace charitable authority. And there's a ton there. I've written books, <laughs> volumes of books on this. So, and I won't, I won't inundate you with all that. Well, at the end, we'll definitely cover how people can read more about okay. you or get your books for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, we just have to ask this question. Do you think St. Joseph played sports with Jesus? 
Yeah, yeah, sure he did. You <laughs> bet he did. Yeah, it was. It didn't look like basketball or football, but it was something. You know, whatever whatever Hebrew kids played, Joseph was on that. Yeah, and see, here's another thing too. Poor St. Joseph. I mean, like you look at the images of St. Joseph and he's like 230 years old. He's like leaning on a cane, you know, somewhere in the shadows and he's, you know, he's lost all of his hair and, you know, but Joseph had to be a man that was virile. He was strong, perhaps young. I envision him as young because he had to make the trek, you know, from, from Bethlehem to Egypt like that. He had to he had to earn a living for his family through his carpentry as a tecton. You know, this is St. Joseph was a man's man who was silent, humble and hidden. And that silent, humble, hidden man who loved Jesus better than anyone else could, because St. Thomas Aquinas says that God equips us with the proper tools, the gifts to live out a particular vocation. So St. Joseph was called to be a father to God. (laughs) So the tools were there. And part of those tools are have fun. You know, enjoy your son, play. And Jesus played and Joseph played too. And they played together and they had a lot of fun. Right. We'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. All the time. Yeah. You mentioned some of your books. Um, Could you tell us about some of them? Yeah. And what made you write them? Okay. Yeah. Well, the first book, um, Joseph's Way, like I said earlier, was a letter to myself, but, um, and that, that was, became a bestseller uh, with Ignatius for a couple of years. That was great, but it was pretty deep. And so I wrote a book called Show Us the Father, Seven Secrets to Become a Father on Earth Like the Father in Heaven. And that, that book is, has been very powerful for a lot of men. Like bishops will um, buy that in bulk and give it to dad's who have newly baptized children, you know, as part of a program. And um, it's got a lot of stories. Um, you know, it's it's very practical. It's very relatable. And, and that book really was a, a very special book. I wrote it in like eight days. So it just came out of me. And then, um, then um, I've written to try to capture, like, what is this roadmap of manhood, you know, from sonship to spiritual fatherhood? I wrote a devotional called LEAD, L-E-A-D, and it's an acronym for listen to discern your mission, which is embracing the silence, embrace your essence, which is embracing the woman, assume your authority and discover the disciple in your child. And so lead is like it's it's made up of 192 daily reflections that take no more than maybe three to four minutes. But it gives you this roadmap from A to Z following St. Joseph and giving us a very practical way in modern time to be able to live all this out. And then I've got actually, I've, I've written over 20, I think at 22 books, 23 books. So we're not going to go through all of them here, you know? oh, but yeah. you can, you can find them at uh, fathers of st joseph.org. But the big thing, Kustos was another one. Um, the consecration to St. Joseph uh, for fathers, for men. And that was, that was a, um, that was a great book. I mean, like, a lot of guys love that, but the reason it was so powerful was because it was broken down in seven stages. And at each stage, you chose spiritual practices, and those spiritual practices would compile so that by the end of the 33 days, you've got a way of life that you've began to embody that you can live on, a spirituality. And that's really what the Father St. Joseph is all about. We really want to equip men to be able to live the spirituality of St. Joseph based on his four pillars. So we say there's one path, which is your vocation. There's four pillars. There's seven principles, and there's 33 practices. And in Kustos and in the book, the little booklet, The Path, um, I outline 
all of that. It's very simple. But the 33 practices, by applying them in you know year after year, starting to add them into your routine, personal transformation leads to transform uh, relational transformation. Relational transformation changes the world and the church. And so that's been the big focus of my life since 2012. And um, I'm not like I said, I wasn't a writer, but God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called, you know, and, and he gives us the gifts we need to do what he calls us to do. Right. We'll definitely put your uh, the link in, in the show notes so people can get to your Web page. And yeah, thanks. Thank you look for the books for sure. Yeah. So. Um, before we close, Devin, um, anything you want to add or, I mean, you're in a unique position, right? Because we're trying to encourage well everyone who listens, but um, anything you want to add, a pep talk <laughs> to yeah, anyone yeah. out there? Yeah, I think it's easy to look at, you know, at our last Father St. Joseph group, there was a bunch of young guys at my table. And I said, why do you think it? one of the questions was, why is it so difficult to believe that God is trustworthy or that he's all sufficient? And these young guys said, because when I get on the internet, when I get on the news and I see what's happening in the world, it feels like he's not intervening. And what I would say to all of us is that it can feel like that in our own personal lives, you know, like my marriage is crumbling or my kids have fallen away from the church or my kids don't talk to me anymore or, you know, I'm in, I have an addiction or whatever, you know, what I would say is never give up on the all sufficiency of the heavenly father, um, because he has a way, he has a plan for you. And sometimes we have to hit rock bottom. And then there's only way we can go is up from that point. But God allows a lot of times the thorn, you know, St. Paul said three times, I asked the Lord to take away the thorn that buffet from Satan in my side and he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And so I think a part of being men, especially competitive athletic men, is that we don't want to be weak, <laughs> you know? But God is saying, look, be real. You've got some areas of weakness. Now, turn them over to me. And so we can be real together. And then I can come into those areas of weakness and I can make you strong. And so he wants to make you strong in loving a wife who maybe doesn't love you. He wants to make you strong in loving children who maybe don't love you. He wants to make you strong in your addictions that seem to plague you. He wants to make you strong in trust. And that's the healing that he wants to do so that you can end up making all those other things better. And you will, but you got to trust the Lord. Right. And you said something in a video I watched last night. It was a five-minute video about there's all kinds of things going on in the world. And we can't solve all the world's problems, but we can be um, an anchor of hope. Yeah, yeah. And which video was that? <laughs> that's, I don't that's know. Was, uh, you were you were blowing your neighbor's uh, leaves. Oh, your, your... yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> fundamentals. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So it's so true. I mean, like that's exactly right. I think that we become overwhelmed when we look at the odds that are set against us. It's like watching a tsunami come in, and you're standing on the beach alone, and you're like. There's no way I can take this thing. And I think that's a lot of times the way life looks. I can't solve anybody's problems. I can't even solve my own problems, right? But what I can do in every relationship, every person that I meet, I can give them hope. And this is very important. 
hope is not just some empty trinket kind of promise or some kind of flippant, like have a nice day. Uh, hope is a theological virtue. And th why they call it a theological virtue is because it's of moral excellence. It's the closest to God, if you will. It's something that God gives us. Now, here's the deal. Virtue, though, in the Greek is virtus, which is power. So God, when he gives a theological power, he gives us a power to do something morally excellent, to be like him. So hope is a theological power that really, when we live in hope and we give hope to other people, it actually transforms them. It actually begins to transform their life because the deal is, is hope allows us also to be hinged to faith. And when you start to live with faith and not negative, you know, doubts and depressing words and discouragement and all that, when you begin to live in hope, your life changes because you're living in faith. You're believing that God can do something even with the cruddiest situations and bring good out of it. And he does. And I mean, I've had some cruddy situations. I've had cancer. You know, I, when I had cancer, I, my daughter, Anna Marie, was born shortly after that. She was on life support. We almost lost her. Today, she's, she was, from that point on, she's trapped inside of her body, trapped in a wheelchair. Then because I was with her, I lost my job, you know, and, and you know, on and on. And, and, I'm, and God made me short, you know, and I owed, a, at that time, I owed, you know, a million dollars to the hospital, and 90,000, 90, which I owed personally, and I had $200 in my bank account. I was having a bad day, right? And, and, and yet, God has seen me through it. And I think this is very important. We tend to kind of like idealize uh, Christianity and idealize Christ and the Holy Family, but you look at the, the scene in Bethlehem. <clears throat> Mary and Joseph are going to Bethlehem to be counted among the census, numbered among the peoples. And when they get there, I don't know, was it a 30-mile ride with, with a, a pregnant woman on a donkey? I mean, Mary was suffering, you know, mm -hmm. and that was bad enough. And then they get there and they're rejected. And who knows if news of them and Mary's pregnancy had gotten to Joseph's relatives because his kinsmen were from Bethlehem. And they were rejected. And now they've got a makeshift. They've got to do something, find a place. And it, it was the equivalent of a back alley birth. Seriously. They find a cave. It's filthy. It's dark. There's a stench. There's no light. And they are just scrapping here just to get this, a place where they can do this. It's, a, it's like a back alley birth. And here it is. After it's all over, the shepherds show up. And what do they see? They find Mary and Joseph huddled together, keeping warm with the baby Jesus in between them, who's wrapped in swaddling clothes, strip cloth, strips of cloth, and they're huddled and they're, and they're, and in that there is a joy and there's a peace and there's a communion of love and adoration of God, man. And yet the stench still exists, <laughs> the suffering, the mm. filth, the darkness, it's all still there. But guess what? They have the joy and the peace to overcome that. And that's like us. We're all going to have sufferings and trials and tests and tribulations and setbacks and all of that. But if we have God, if we have Christ, we can be joyful with the cross. And he will allow us to bring joy to others and hope to others amidst that suffering. Right. Amen. It can be 0 and 2, and you just take <laughs> that pitch to right field. That's right. Make the best of it. I love that. It's a great story. Yeah, thanks. I was going to ask Devin, so 
how can our listeners stay in touch with you or follow yes. you? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> you can find us uh, at fathersofstjoseph.org. That's where a lot of our resources are. Um, you can find me on YouTube. Um, we have a Fathers of St. Joseph channel um, that we just kind of started out. Um, and there's some you know, different playlists there. And then um, that's mainly the best way to get to me. If you want to email me and talk to me, I love hearing from you. And I love to help in any way I can. It's I'd love to give hope. So you can contact me at Devin at fathers of stjoseph.org. And uh, that's how you reach me. Okay, great. And arrange speaking engagements. If you want to come out and give a talk to your parish or. Yeah. So I do that a lot, you know, like uh, this coming up month, I'm going to be in Minneapolis for the archdiocesan uh a men's conference. I was just up at a wilderness retreat, given a four-part retreat, which I love. I love those four-part retreats with men because you get the time to walk them through, uh, you know, the the way to follow St. Joseph. And then I'll be in Austria uh, for that four-part men's retreat um, next month. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a big part of what we do is uh, try to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of fatherhood to men across the nation and the world. Amen. Right. Well, Randy, do you want to close us out in prayer? I would love to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for Devin and his ministry, his message of fatherhood to those that are listening to us, Lord. We ask that you touch their hearts. We ask that we pray for the fatherless children around the world in in our country we pray that they find somebody to fill that that father model in their lives for them lord <laughs> we pray for the for the mothers that are trying to be both both father and mother we left this ministry up to you and we pray for whatever whatever we said that something would hit somebody's heart who's listening to this podcast and come closer to you and, and be a better father and a better mother and a better witness of you. And we pray this with the intercession of Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary Mother, of God, Mother of God, pray for us, pray sinners, for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Our death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, Devin. Yeah, we appreciate you. your time. Yeah, it's been great. Great, great talking with you. you. Yeah, God bless you guys. Thank God you. God bless. <laughs>